Okay. Is this okay? You can hear me this way. Okay. So we're going to adapt and overcome, as the Marines would say, right? Okay. Not too bad for an Air Force guy, right? To adapt and overcome. So now I'm tied to the podium. I don't like that part, but okay. Let me pray for us real quick. <laughs> Father, we do thank you for, um, for your amazing grace, dear God. We thank you that you are sovereignly in control. And, uh, Father God, that uh, you love us and that you care for us, dear God. Thank you that uh, your word is clear. Um, you're not a God of confusion, dear God. You're not hiding. Um, you desire a relationship with us, dear Lord. And, and Father, you've given us your word. And, uh, and we can know you through that word, dear Lord. And so I just pray to God that you would be with us today. Um, just touch our hearts and let us hear from you. Amen. Okay, so this, this happened because I said earlier that I hated the other uh, mic. And so now this one doesn't work. And so I've learned my lesson. So most of you know I was in the Air Force. I was in the Air Force for 27 years. And I wasn't a pilot. That's the most frequent question I get asked when people hear I was in the Air Force. Well, did you fly? No, I didn't fly. Not everybody in the Air Force flies. Um, I was in a support role. And every once in a while, we would have the opportunity to go out to the flight line. And when you go out to the flight line, there's uh, the active runway, and then there's taxiways, and then there's the apron. And so we would have to go out on the apron every once in a while. And there's lanes that are marked, so where you can drive, you can, they're marked in yellow. And where they would park the planes were marked with bright red, probably about a foot wide lines painted on the, uh, the taxiway or the apron. And it really stood out against the white concrete. I mean, it was very clear, this is a border, don't cross. And usually when you did cross, um, not good things happen. So a lot of times they involve flashing lights and sometimes in guns. Uh, and then people with stuff on their collars would come and yell at you. And it just wasn't a pleasant experience, I'm told. I never actually experienced it. Um, but anyway, so I say all that to say um, that we're in the fourth of a seven-part series and it's entitled, Here We Stand. And what we're trying to do in this series is, as an elder group and as a leadership group, we're trying to, we're trying to mark out a bright red line, okay, for you guys, uh, that we think on this side of the line is orthodoxy, is life, is joy. On that side of the line is flashing lights and guns and people yelling at you, okay? So there's... There's bad stuff on that side of the line. Kent started us off four weeks ago before his Hawaiian vacation. Um, started us off talking about the nature of truth. And then Mike talked about the sufficiency of scripture. And last week Bill taught about Genesis and what's at stake with this historical um, version of Genesis. And today I'm going to talk about the resurrection. Does it does it seem a little weird to be talking about the resurrection in September? No? 
Okay, Julie says no. It, doesn't it seem, okay, we just talked about Christmas, and so now we're talking about the resurrection. Doesn't it seem a little weird, it's the end of September. You know, I think sometimes in the church, and I say the church generally, not necessarily our church. I forgot to set my timer, guys. I'm sorry. That was all free. I think in the church generally, we sometimes focus on uh, Jesus' birth at Christmas time and his resurrection during Easter. And then in between those two, we talk about his death on the cross, right? But I don't think, I think when we do that, we don't get a, a really clear picture of what's involved in salvation and, and how those three work together. So the way I kind of think of this is, you know, a three-legged stool. And this could be a bad analogy. The Mike and Kendall let me know later if this is heresy. But uh, hopefully it's not. <laughs> so... Um, so you think of a three-legged stool, right? So one leg of the stool is Christ's uh, sinless birth and his sinless life. And the other leg of the stool is his suffering and his death and his taking God's wrath. And then the third leg of the stool is his resurrection and his ascension. When you have all three legs, you have something that you can sit on, you can stand on, something that's going to bear your weight. When you're missing a leg, what happens? Yeah, you, you fall over. One of those is it's not working. And so I think uh, when we uh, neglect the resurrection, unintentionally, I think, we miss out on that. And I think we neglect the resurrection sometimes because for a couple of reasons. One, I think, is the way the resurrection is presented in the Gospels. And I, I think it's intentional, uh, not saying that the, there's something wrong with the Gospels. I'm saying that the majority of the gospel teaching, the gospel's teaching is focused on Christ's life and his ministry. And proportionally, as far as writing, there's very little about the resurrection. So, you know, it's one chapter or a chapter and a half in Matthew. And most of the working out of the implications of the resurrection happens in Acts. You see the church being born. You see... Uh, them being arrested, you see the persecution and, and them going out into all the world. And most of the theology of the resurrection is worked out in the epistles. And as Peter says, of the epistles, you know, there's things in there that are hard to understand. Uh, there's things that are confusing to us. And so I think we don't always spend as much time as we should in the epistles and in other parts of the scripture, and so we don't focus on the resurrection as much. Um, okay, so what I want to do, what I'm hoping to do today is we're going to look at a passage of scripture, and uh, it's 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to turn there, and, and Paul's going to tell us exactly what happens when you don't have a, uh, a physical bodily resurrection of Christ, and then he's going to tell us uh, why we need uh, an orthodox teaching of that. Um, before we do that, I just want to briefly touch on a phenomena that I'm going to that I'm going to call um, resurrection denial, kind of like climate change denial. But um, and because there's a there's a thought out there that you can still be a Christian 
and you can deny a physical resurrection of Christ. Um, I'm just going to lay my cards on the table and I'm say I think that's false and ridiculous. Um, I think you, you just cannot deny the resurrection and still call yourself a Christian. So um, that's my story. But over the years, there have been lots of theories proposed to deny the resurrection or to, to explain away the resurrection. The theories run the gamut from the apostles stole the body to they mass hallucinated this resurrection. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on these because, frankly, they are not very convincing and most of them are just downright silly. Um, but I do want to highlight a couple. And just to show you the lengths that people will go uh, to deny a resurrection. Um, my personal favorite is the swoon theory. Has anybody heard of that? No? Okay. Um, this is not very popular anymore. It was very popular in the 17th and 18th century. It's been completely debunked by most reputable scholars. But for entertainment value, you cannot beat this theory because it's, it's a winner. Um, so the theory goes like this. So they would affirm everything. Jesus was, uh, was beaten. He was scourged. He had the crown of thorns put on his head. He was nailed to the cross. Um, and he survived all that. He just fainted. So instead of actually dying, he fainted. And they didn't have good medical equipment back then. They didn't have EKGs or stethoscopes. And so his heartbeat was so low that they thought he was dead. So they wrapped him up, placed him in the tomb, Closed the, closed the tomb. And in the coolness of the tomb, he revived. He came to. <laughs> Somebody's laughing. It's okay to laugh. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, you're totally okay to laugh. So somehow he gets out of the grave clothes. He opens the tomb. He walks unnoticed and unaided about two and a half miles to Jerusalem, finds the disciples in the room that they're hiding in, because remember they were scared of the Jews. So they were hiding in there. Um, Knocks on the door, they open the door, and here's this battered and bloody and Jesus in need of medical attention. So they help him out. He eventually dies, and they hide his body, and they make up the story of the resurrection. Okay? I wish I, wish I had a camera for Lisa's face, because she's just like, what are you talking about? Right? Guys, that's, that's insanity. Right? That's, that just doesn't hold with reality. Right? All these guys, most of the apostles, except for John, they were martyred for their faith. And they were martyred affirming the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. If they had hidden the body or, or if Jesus had come into the room and he still needed medical attention, it, does it make any sense that they would have done that? It just doesn't. Um, the other theory is just as bad, if not worse. It's called the hallucination theory. And uh, it goes that... Um, they were so hyped up about the resurrection, they were so looking forward to it, that when Jesus died, there was some kind of psychotic break among them, and they hallucinated the resurrection. And again, the same story. So these guys went to their death based on a hallucination. Um, it just it, it doesn't, doesn't jive with reality. Um, I'm not going to talk about the Jesus Seminar uh, in the interest of time. They were a group that was active in the 80s and 90s. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. If not, you can Google them. 
but again, they would deny the resurrection as well. Um, and you know, Mike has talked to s- several times about how when God does something, Satan always tries to counterfeit it. Okay, well these, to us, these stories sound wacky, and they are, but they're counterfeits of the real story. And like all forgeries, some are better than others, and these are just two really, two really bad forgeries. You can contrast those tales with what the Bible says about the resurrection. Um, in Matthew 16, 16, 21, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, this is a very famous passage, you guys are probably familiar with it. He tells them plainly, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise on the, on the third day. And this is the passage where Peter rebukes him for it. He says, it'll never happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking man's thoughts, not God's thoughts. Mark tells that same story in Mark 8, 31. Uh, Luke 9, 20 through 22 is the famous passage where Peter says, Jesus asks him, who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. And then Jesus again says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer and die, and I'm going to rise again. All f- all four of the Gospels tell the same story about the crucifixion and the resurrection. The book of Acts, all the epistles tell the same story. Okay? Acts 4, Peter and John were arrested by the Sanhedrin. And in fact, in verse 1, it says that they were arrested, uh, that the Sadducees were greatly annoyed with them for teaching the resurrection. Um, In Acts 26, Paul was being questioned by Festus and Agrippa. Excuse me. Remember, he had been arrested, he had been accused by the Jews, and he had appealed to Caesar, and Festus wants to know, well, he's appealed to Caesar, what charges do I send him with? I don't have anything to, I don't have anything to tell Caesar. So, he's before Herod and Festus, and and he affirms the belief in the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that uh, Jesus rose from the, from the dead and he appeared to 500 people at one time. And most of those 500 people were still alive. So they could have refuted Paul. Uh, so, you know, the resurrection is just a central teaching of all of the New Testament. And, again, as I said, each of the uh, apostles was was martyred. Um, so it's just, there's just so much biblical evidence that it's just irrational to think that the resurrection didn't happen. All right, so, so what's at stake? What's at stake if Christ really didn't rise from the dead? Um, does it change the essential nature of salvation? Um, is, it, is, the resur- is the resurrection just about new beginnings? That sounds kind of nice, right? New beginnings? Why, why can't it be something happy about new beginnings? Right? We have a newborn in our house. New beginnings. That's all nice and gives you a fuzzy, warm feeling. Why can't it be about that? Um, well, Paul's going to tell us in 1 Corinthians 15. He's going he's gonna to tell us exactly what is at stake here in the physical resurrection of Christ. So let's jump right in. Just a little bit of context as well. Um, the Corinthians weren't 
necessarily denying that Christ had risen from the dead. Because if you go back to chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, Paul said that you believe the message I preached to you, and that message included the resurrection. But there was a Greek thought that when you, when you died, that was it. You just, that was it. There was nothing after. Or if there was something after, it was just kind of this floating in this gray existence. And so Paul wants to correct that, and in the process of correcting it, he helps me out today by telling us what, what happens when you deny the resurrection. So in verse 14, is where we're going to pick up, um, and Paul goes, Paul goes straight to the heart of the matter. Um, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. So if Christ isn't raised from the dead, everything Paul taught is in vain, and everything that they believed is in vain. So you, know, we go, you go back, and, and Paul begins this chapter by saying that I, I told you what was of first importance to me. That Let's just read it. Um, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day with the, in accordance with the scriptures. So, so this wasn't a minor detail for Paul. It wasn't an, it wasn't an ancillary thing. It was, it was central to the message of the gospel. But if there is no resurrection, then then Paul's, Paul's teaching was in vain. And you think about, you think about Paul's life, and in several places Paul talks about, you know, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he was born on the eighth day, and he had given all that up for the sake of the gospel. In fact, he considered it rubbish. You look at Acts, you look at the book of Acts, and you think of all the hardships that Paul endured to spread the gospel in Asia, and in fact, in verses 30 and 32 of chapter 15, Paul's going to say, uh, you know, that if Christ is not raised, why was I in danger all this time? Why did I fight with the beasts at Ephesus? Um, you know, Paul was, uh, he endured uh, trials with the Jews, and, and his time in Ephesus concluded with him being stoned and left for dead. Okay? So clearly Paul was invested in this message that Christ had risen from the dead. But he's saying that if, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then all that was worthless. Everything I suffered, being stoned, uh, a night and a day in the sea, in danger from robbers, all that, all that didn't mean anything. It was all worthless. And also, the Corinthians' faith was worthless. If there's no resurrection, then they believed a lie. And he's going to expand on that later. I'm going to talk about it a little bit more. But think about that, too. So unlike when we joined the church, if you were somebody in the first century, whether you were a Greek or a Jew, when you joined the church, you were making a break with your culture. All right, so if you were a Greek, you wouldn't, you wouldn't or a Greek or a Roman, you wouldn't sacrifice to the gods anymore because you weren't polytheistic. You were believed that there was one God. And so that cut you off from the marketplace. That cut you off from civil society. Uh, if you were a Jew, you were turning your back on your culture. It's the same thing 
that Muslims say today when they come to faith and why it's so difficult sometimes is because there's a belief that you have to deny your faith. And so that was a real break. If, if that had happened, if there was no resurrection, then their faith was in vain. And so the, all that that they had gone through was, was worthless. It was nothing. Okay, Paul goes on to say in verse 15 um, that if there is no resurrection, then Paul's been misrepresenting God. Um, because Paul's been going around the known world. He's been going around in Asia and, and all these other places preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead for forgiveness of sins. If there's no resurrection, then, then Paul's been going around misrepresenting God. And it's not just Paul that's been misrepresenting God. It's the rest of the scripture as well. You know, Kent talked in Sunday school. Uh, the message of the Old Testament was Christ. Right? So you look at Acts 8. Uh, the story, it's the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And he was reading, the Ethiopian eunuch was reading Isaiah 53. Okay? So if there's no resurrection, then those Old Testament passages that were alluding to Christ and his, uh, his death and his resurrection, they were misrepresenting God as well. So Paul's not only implicating himself, he's implicating the rest of Scripture. Um, Acts 17 and 18, Paul and Apollos, they were reasoned with the Jews from the Scriptures. Again, those were, those were Old Testament Scriptures, which was all null and void if there's no resurrection. Okay, Paul goes on, uh, and I think this, this, is, this is the heart of this passage, I think, and it's the most depressing part of this passage. Uh, not that this is, this is a really depressing part of Scripture to begin with, but this is really bad. So Paul goes on in verses 17 and 18. So he says, uh, let me get to it. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Okay, so let that, Paul, Paul has already said your faith is in vain. Now he said your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. So just let that sink in for a minute. So not only, um, and in 18 he goes on to say not only, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. I'm sorry, I lost my place here. Let me get back to it. Okay. Um, so what Paul is saying is that not only are they not going to rise from the dead, but their sins were not atoned for. So they died without their sins being atoned for. They're still under God's wrath. You know, First Peter says, 3 and 4 says, we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if there's no resurrection, we're not born to a living hope. Um, Paul's going to end this depressing part of Scripture, and he's going to say that if, we, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all men to be most pitied. And, and I would agree. I mean, if you read that passage of Scripture, and if those things are true, then we are to be most pitied. But, the very next sentence, verse 20, but. Isn't that a great word? But, 
right? You can just feel the weight lifting with that word. Uh, you feel it's a word of hope. Paul's been talking about some grim and hopeless stuff. But, but things are not as bad as I made them out to be. But, um, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And that changes everything. Um, Paul's going to say that because Christ has been raised from the dead, the sin that we inherited from Adam and the curse of death that we inherited from Adam is lifted. And we have life in Christ. That Christ is the first fruits of the, of the dead. And so Christ is raised to a resurrected body. It's not subject to death. It's not subject to disease. It's not subject to fatigue. And you know what, folks? The older I get, the better that sounds. Okay? Because you do stuff and you're just tired. Again, we have a newborn. And I'm not, my wife is uh, doing the lion's share of the work. So I don't want to say that I'm doing a lot at all. Uh, but you get tired, right? You get tired. We're going to inherit bodies that never get tired. And not only that, and we don't know what this looks like, but we're going to inherit bodies that are specially designed for heaven. So we're going to have the ability to, to know and to see and to experience things the way we were always meant to. All right? Heaven is going to be spectacular. And it's not going to be uh, like it would be now where we kind of see it darkly or we see it uh, imperfectly. We're going to experience it completely. Our senses are going to be 100%. Our mental faculties are going to be 100%. And, and we're going to live with, with God forever and enjoy it. And all because we're going to have resurrection bodies. Um, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And so we're justified before God when we put our faith in Christ. Romans 4.25 says, Paul says that Christ was raised up for our justification. And this is, we're going back to the stool analogy. So on the cross, God was pouring out his wrath on Christ. The scripture says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And so all that wrath was being poured out on Christ. And when Jesus said it's finished, there was no more wrath. Okay, the resurrection is God's signal and God's sign that he had accepted that, that that penalty had been paid. And, you know, some people will say, well, why can't God just forgive sins? He's God, right? Why can't he just why can't why can't God be big enough to just let it go? Um, And. We're in the theology class with Mike and, and we're talking about. God's perfections, which is what Charles Ryrie calls them. And, and one of God's perfections is justice. God is completely just, and God is completely righteous. And for God just to say, you know, I can see you're really sorry. I can see you didn't mean it. I can see you had all these cultural factors. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. You know, that's not justice. That wouldn't be justice. That would be a violation of God's justice. And so when God poured out his wrath on Christ and God raised him from the dead, it's saying that your sacrifice was enough. I accept that. And for those that are in Christ, it means that your sins aren't held against you anymore. God is just 
when he justifies us in that relationship based on Christ's work. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And so sin and death are, no, are under subjection to Christ. Um, and because they're under subjection to Christ, they don't have any power over us any longer. Uh, Romans six eleven says we should consider ourselves dead to sin and alive in God in Christ Jesus. And to be honest, guys, a lot of times I feel like those are reversed in my life. Um, that I'm, I'm dead to Christ and I'm alive to sin. And I, I, think, I think Paul echoes that because he says in chapter 7 of Romans, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. But this is a spiritual reality for us, whether we feel it or not, whether we experience it perfectly or not. Um, because Christ died, because he rose from the dead, sin and death don't have any power over us. Okay, Romans 12.1 uh, says that we're no longer enslaved to sin. And so we have the ability, we have the power to not let sin be a consistent part of our lives. It doesn't mean we're not going to ever sin, but it means that it's not the pattern of our lives. We're not enslaved to it. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And so on those occasions when we do sin, we have a faithful high priest who lives to make intercession for us. Um, Just think about that for a second. Right now, we're gathered here. We're in Topeka, Kansas. We're in our church building. And... Uh, we have a risen Savior who is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. So on those occasions when we do sin, on those occasions when Satan accuses us, right, there's Christ at the right hand of the Father saying, nope, nope, I'm not going to listen to that accusation. Uh, that's my child. He belongs to me. She belongs to me to intercede for us. Guys, there's just, that should be such an encouragement to us. Okay, it should be such a great feeling to know that every time we mess up, there's God or there's Christ right there at the right hand of the father. Say, no, no, I've taken care of that. That's my child. That's my beloved, dearly loved child. And then Paul's going to end this section. uh, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And because, there is, because Christ has been raised from the dead, there's going to be a final reckoning of all things. So we look at the world around us, and we look at the culture around us, and, and we know things are not the way they're supposed to be. Uh, there's war, there's disease, there's famine, people uh, are, are hungry, uh, marriages are, are imploding right and left. Uh, things are not as they're supposed to be. We instinctively know that. But because Christ rise from the dead, he's going to make all things right. He's going to return one day. Um, God is going to dispense perfect justice. Okay? Everybody will get the perfect justice that they deserve. Some of us are going to get mercy. The devil and his angels are going to get thrown in the lake of fire. Paul talks about that. Um, and then the heavens and the earth are going to be renewed. And we who are in Christ and who our names are written in the book of life, we're going to enjoy living with him forever. And that's a great encouragement. Jesus really did rise from the grave. He really did. 
Okay? And that fact demands a response. If you're here today and you're not a believer, it demands a response from you. Um, you can walk out of this building today a new creation, your sins forgiven, your soul knit to Christ, looking forward to a resurrected body, looking forward to uh, the pleasures of heaven forever. Um, or you can walk out of here unconverted and unconvinced and, and go get lunch. Uh, the choice is yours. Romans 10.9 says, um, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise. It's not a promise to super saints. It's not a promise to people that have their act together. It's a promise to everybody. Okay? And it's a promise that can be made because Jesus really rose from the dead. But for those who do claim the name of Christ, for those who are believers, it demands a response from us as well. Um, Paul's going to end this chapter. Uh, he's going to tell believers, be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. And we talked about today, we talked about the culture. And as we see the culture moving away from us more and more quickly, as we see some in the church moving away from us more and more quickly, uh, our task is to stand firm. Stand firm and proclaim the gospel, the gospel that has been preached and has been handed down to us, right? We're told to contend earnestly for the faith. And so that demands a response from us as well. Um, as Kent said, we need to proclaim that gospel no matter what it costs us, okay? Some in this room, in the not-too-distant future, may find ourselves in jail. And if that's what it costs for the gospel to be proclaimed, well, then we need to be willing to pay that price and joyfully pay that price. The resurrection was real. Jesus is alive, and he is returning one day. So let's work and serve and love so that when he returns, we don't need to be ashamed of his coming. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that uh, you loved us. You sent your son. Um, we thank you, dear God, that you provided a way for us to know you, and to love you, dear God. And uh, we pray, Father, that as uh, we continue to worship you, dear God, that we would do it in spirit and in truth. Uh, we thank you, dear God, for the great grace that you've poured out on our lives. And, uh, and Father, we just, uh, we just give you praise and glory for all things. Amen.